Back in May, we, I know you remember this sermon super well, so I don't need to summarize it. We studied Psalm 1 together, and I mentioned at the time that Psalm 1 is a word to the wise and a warning to the wicked of what happens down the road when you choose to move in the direction of heeding the words of this book, or if you should choose to reject the words of this book. Those who collected the Psalms together and organized uh, the various Psalms wanted us to know up front that it is vital that we submit to God's Word. And really, it's the only viable option. Here in Psalm 2, we have a similar lesson, but the focus is not so much on the Word of God specifically, but on the person of God Himself. Psalm 2 is also a warning, but it's not a hellfire brimstone message. It's actually a hope-filled message calling people enraged against the king to bow down their knee and worship. To those who submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, it's a message of comfort and a promise of protection and victory. The title of this message is Good News for a Hostile World. The Gospel according to Psalm 2. There's a sense in which this psalm would be relatively easy to preach. It's, there's a clear structure. There's a sharp message and obvious application. What makes Psalm 2 challenging is it's one of the most, if not the most, quoted psalms in the New Testament. It speaks prophetically of the coming Messiah being initially fulfilled in part in the first coming of Christ, but then finding its final and ultimate fulfillment in the second coming, even in the end of time itself. In addition to its feature orientation, it also speaks about the universal reality of human hostility against God and His rule. It also teaches us about His universal offer of salvation. So, as we walk through the psalm, we'll consider those different vistas of prophecy and revelation along the way. By way of an outline, you can see as you look at your Bible that there are four stanzas, each with three verses. Each stanza, we hear from a different voice. In the first stanza, we hear from mankind. In the second stanza, we hear from God the Father. In the third, we hear from God the Son. And in the fourth, you can probably guess it, we hear from God the Holy Spirit. And so the outline for this message will reflect the speaker as follows. The raging nations, the laughing Lord, the conquering king, and the calling comforter. The raging nations, the laughing Lord, the conquering king, and the calling comforter. As we read it, see if you can detect the different voices uh, in the psalm. Follow along as I read Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. 
I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him. What is the point of this psalm? This psalm declares to us and to all the world that the universal reign of Christ will come and conquer all His enemies. So submit to the Lord now and come under His protective care lest you be swept away in His wrath. I don't need to recount to you the many social and political and personal storms we've experienced this year. But I want to remind you, even as I remind myself often, of what is the church to do in the midst of these storms? What role do we play? Well, think of it this way. The church is a lighthouse on the edge of the sea. And like a lighthouse, the church has no ability to alter the storm itself. All it can do, and in fact what it must do, is resolutely shine its light at full strength to those tossed by the winds and blinded by the darkness, lest they crash upon the shores of God's eternal destruction. The message of the light is to turn. Turn away from your dangerous path and find safety in the harbor of God our Savior. That's the point of this psalm. The message of Psalm 2 is the light that we must keep shining. The darker the night gets, the more necessary it is to shine. The more clouds that gather, the more necessary it is to shine. The the more the wind blows and the rain falls, the more necessary it is to shine. The light of the gospel is the message of the church. And so may this psalm further infuse that light into us so that we can shine brighter and brighter. Let's first consider the reason why the good news is necessary. Listen to the raging nations. Look again at verses 1 to 3. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. One of the signature features of Hebrew Hebrew poetry is called parallelism. There are different kinds of parallelism, but one of the most common kinds, in fact, what we find mostly here, is where the two lines essentially say the same thing, but the second line adds to and expands the horizons of the first line. In this particular section, we see with increasing intensity how David, who the New Testament identifies as the author, how he writes about these raging nations. First, 
they angrily gather together to plot against God. And then they join together in battle array. And then with one voice, they attempt to remove themselves from under God's sovereign control. This is mutiny at the highest level. The picture here is clear. This is a calculated gathering of all humanity in rebellion against God, born out of a deep-seated hatred for God's rule over their lives. This rebellion actually exists in the heart of everyone, from the person of lowest estate to the highest positions of power. The the word nations and peoples there uh, in verses 1 and 2 refer to the full swath of humanity. People from every tribe and nation, every tongue, Whatever differences may exist among these people, whatever language or culture or religious or ethnic or other differences they might have, they have set aside all of those differences to come together to fight against their common enemy, God the Father and His anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 1, the word devising. Your translation might say plotting or conspiring or imagining. The Hebrew word is the same as what we find in Psalm 1 that speaks of the blessed man meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. In other words, while the righteous man is actively and continually thinking about how much he loves the law of God, he's he's rejoicing in the goodness of who God is and what God has revealed, the nations are continually and actively thinking about their hatred toward God and how much they want to get out from under His sovereign rule. Now go back to the first word there in verse 1. What is it? It's why. Why? Why are the nations against God in such a violent way? Why are they so intent on overthrowing His rule from their lives? Why do they hate God so much? Now, this is a rhetorical question in the text. It's not meant to be answered. The intention, the meaning behind it is, this is irrationality. This is insanity. The nations and peoples are out of their minds to rebel against God. But why do they do it? Why are they bent toward hostility? But we know because of what Scripture teaches that they do it because being under the curse of sin, they are spiritually dead and do not have the capacity to do otherwise. This is what we find in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, which says, For this reason the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, he says. You follow the logic? It's not just that they don't submit to God. It's that they can't. This is a a functional inability. In Ezekiel 37, there is a portrayal of humanity as a, a field of dry bones. And God himself has to bring these bones together and stitch them with their sinews and their muscles and their ligaments and inserting the organs and all the rest. And then the Spirit comes and breathes the breath of life to make these bones alive. 
Again, there's this clear picture that apart from God, humanity is absolutely dead. Spiritual deadness is the reason that mankind is irrationally hostile against God. In Colossians 1.21, we read the biography of every believer's life before we were saved. It says, you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Every person born into the world is hostile to God. They may not think that they are, but their hostility is shown in their fundamental rejection of His rule over their lives. Now this psalm had its initial fulfillment in the first coming of Christ. The the word anointed in Hebrew is transliterated into the word Messiah, which we're familiar with. In Greek, it's the word Christos, which of course we get Christ. So Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one of the Lord. In, In Acts 4, after Peter and John were released from their first arrest, and they gave the report to the church, the church collectively lifted up their voice together and said, O Lord, it is You who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, Your servant said, and they quote Psalm 2, Why did the nations, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Now, one could say that Pilate and the Roman soldiers weren't really hostile to Christ. I mean, really, they could care less about him. But their hostility toward him was reflected in that very ambivalence. They rejected God's standard of justice and righteousness, and they put to death an innocent man without any regard for truth. Of course, the Jewish leaders were the most hostile ones. They saw people by the thousands following Jesus, hanging on their every on his every word, and they felt like their influence and their power was threatened, and so. Instead of rejoicing that the Messiah had come, they felt like we need to get rid of this guy. So they gathered together to devise a way to put Jesus to death. They, they conspired and plotted and tried to trap him in something that he might say so that they would have reason to accuse him. But lacking any success, they stole him away in the night and put him through illegal trials where he was falsely accused and condemned and ultimately put to death. In fact, their hearts were so filled with rage that when Pilate asked them, do you want me to kill your king? The chief priest replied, we have no king but Caesar. Their declaration reflected the reality that long ago they had removed God's rule from their lives and their nation. These religious leaders preferred to be ruled by an oppressive pagan than by the gracious Messiah of the Lord. This goes all the way back in the time of Jeremiah. When that weeping prophet said in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 5, he wasn't getting a hearing among the people, and so he said, 
I will go to the great and will speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord and the ordinance of their God. But they too, with one accord, have broken the yoke and burst the bonds. That's the language of verse 3 of Psalm 2. Jeremiah hoped that he could speak to the leaders of Israel. Surely they will listen to my message from God. But no, they rejected it. They had torn the fetters of God's gracious rule and cast away the cord of God's loving kindness. Well, not only at His first coming, but even more so at His second coming, the nations will take their stand against Jesus the Messiah. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, we read that the beast along with the kings of the earth will wage war against the Lamb. And again, in chapter 19, all kings and commanders and mighty men and all men are assembled to fight against Christ. And then in Revelation 20, after the thousand year reign of Christ on the earth, Satan will be released from his prison. He'll deceive the nations. And one last time, they will gather to fight against the Lord. Revelation says that the number of these rebellious people is like the sand of the seashore. Millions upon hundreds of millions of people. Friends, it is inherent in the nature of fallen humanity that men and women are set on overthrowing the rule and authority of God and His anointed Jesus. We see this around us. Maybe we even see it in us. We certainly see it in our nation and the nations around the world. Our nation and its leaders are bent on overturning God's rule. Obviously, unbelievers have never had interest in submitting themselves to the variety of wisdom and, and principles and morality that God has revealed in His Word. But we live in a day when our culture has rejected the, the most fundamental truth that God has revealed about humanity. That God has made man male and female. And having rejected those first words about humanity, there's really nothing left to reject. All the threads of God's truth have been torn apart and cast away. Every sphere of our society, from entertainment to sports to business to government to education, all celebrate lifestyles and choices and morality that have that are a direct attack on the character of God and the image of God in man. Indeed, Psalm 2 accurately reflects the raging of the nations against God. Friend, if you're here, or you're watching or listening, and you've not submitted your life to the Lordship of Jesus, understand what the Scripture here says about you. If you're not for Christ, you're against Christ. You may be apathetic or disinterested or too busy to care, but all of those things is equally an affront to God as open hostility. There is no middle ground. Don't be foolish. Don't be vain. The Lord demands complete submission to His rule over our lives. And until we do that, we are living in hostility to Him. Well, having heard from the raging nations, we now hear from the laughing Lord, God the Father. Look at verses 4 to 6. 
He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. It's hard to imagine a greater contrast to the seething hostility of humanity. Just imagine in your mind a camera pointed down to earth. And what you see in this angle, wide angle of the earth, is a sea and mass of humanity all gathered together. And then in a show of strength, they're beating their shields and stomping their feet and and chanting loud war cries that resonate across the land. And then the camera angle turns to look at the court of heaven where God is sitting on His throne and, and He has to peer down at humanity because of their smallness. The expression on His face is closer to curiosity than concern. But then a smile begins to crack on His face and then a, a chuckle comes out and then open laughter Not because this is a humorous scene, but because it is so utterly irrational and ridiculous and preposterous that the only appropriate response is to laugh. Raging nations are like a lion cub that seeking to boast of its ferocity as being the king of the jungle wants to put out the loudest, most ferocious roar that it can and so it musters up all its strength and what comes out is... That's anything but threatening. These people are not cute little cubs. They are rage-filled flecks of dust who actually believe they can overpower the Almighty God of the universe. And so God scoffs at them. He mocks the stupidity of their insolent pride and self-esteem. And the Lord tells these people that all of their rebellion and all of their threatening has been in vain. The very thing that they have come together, set in battle array to to prevent is the very thing that God has already accomplished. They sought to unseat God from His throne and overthrow His rule from the earth, but the Lord continues to rule just the same. Friends, do you know that there is nothing that you individually or we collectively can do to thwart God's plans? Job says to the Lord in his confession at the end of that book, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The Lord himself declares in Isaiah 46 verses 10 to 11, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. God's plan for a ruler that would overcome his enemies was first declared to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. It was included in his covenant to Abraham. It was defined in his covenant to David. And it was proclaimed in the prophecies about the coming Messiah. This plan was more firmly fixed than the laws of nature themselves. When the Magi declared to Herod that the king of the Jews had been born. Herod, of course, felt threatened and thought he could thwart God's plans. But he failed. Not only did he not kill Jesus, but his actions actually led to the fulfillment of prophecy. When the Pharisees thought 
they could get rid of the Messiah, they too failed. They also thought that killing Jesus would solve the problem, but in the process of actually doing that, they actually enabled Jesus to accomplish the very thing that he was set out to do as Messiah. Again, the day will come when this text will be fulfilled as human armies gather together at Armageddon thinking they can subvert God's rule. And again, they will fail. The, The Messiah King will descend from heaven and He will establish His throne in Jerusalem and rule for a thousand years. And then, in that last rebellion, He will vanquish His enemies once again and rule over the new earth that we read about today from the new Jerusalem in an everlasting rule that will never be challenged again. The Lord laughs at those who think they can frustrate God's plans or impede His purposes or obstruct His kingdom from being established. Continuing along this theme, the psalmist now hands the microphone to to God the Son, as it were, who reveals to us the Father's predetermined plans. This is the conquering King. Look again at verses 7 to 9. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shall shatter them like earthenware. So the speaker is the son of God. He actually spends most of his time quoting the father. In doing so, the son functions according to his role as a prophet. Now put that on a sticky note and stick it in the back of your mind that he's acting as a prophet as he speaks these words. Specifically, he proclaims a series of decrees made by the father. And the, the, the quotation here is actually three separate decrees that the father has made in eternity past. The first decree reveals that the relationship between the first member of the Trinity and the second is a relationship of sonship. The second decree is an offer of an inheritance born out of the Father's pleasure in the Son. And the third decree is a declaration of assured victory over hostile humanity. Let's look at each one of these in turn. Decree number one there in verse seven. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Many gallons of ink have been spilled over the the various questions that arise from these particular words. Most of that ink could have been put to better use if they would have just used Scripture to interpret itself. That's one of the things that's so helpful about the, the interpretation principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture is you tend to come to a solution to complex questions much faster. Now, in this case, we have a variety of passages, as I mentioned, it's quoted often, that help us understand what is being said here. What's the meaning of, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Well, Second Samuel 7 is where we find the Davidic covenant, where God makes a covenant to David about his future plans. And among other things, the Lord says to David in verses 12 to 14 of 2 Samuel 7, He says, When when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. You can see why some would connect Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 together. There are similarities in talking about the eternal kingdom and this son of David who would also be the son of the Lord. And it's true that connecting these two passages is essential. But where some have gone wrong is they have identified Solomon as the son that Psalm 2 is referring to. But there are multiple problems with that view. First of all, Solomon Solomon's reign was not eternal. In fact, immediately after his death, the kingdom was split in two. And eventually his line ceased having a throne to sit on because of Israel's disobedience and their deportation from the land. Second, Scripture nowhere records these intimate words here of Psalm 2 verse 7 as being spoken to Solomon from God. And then third, there's no record in Scripture of connecting this phrase in Psalm 2 with Solomon himself. So while there are other problems, those are the most conclusive, I, I think. But in contrast to that, there are other passages that actually do connect Psalm 2 verse 7 to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate son of David. Well, listen to this statement that Paul said in his sermon in Acts 13. Paul said, as he preached the gospel, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, speaking of the resurrection, he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. In other words, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, interprets this statement in Psalm 2 as being fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul's not alone in this. The Holy Spirit also inspired the author of Hebrews to interpret this text the same way. Listen to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, where it says, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now the argument of verse 5 is that uh, no human priest is made a priest by themselves. You can't just walk up to, to Israel one day and say, hey, I'm a high priest. There's no such thing as a self-made high priest. Somebody else has to appoint you. And what he's making the argument there in, in Hebrews 5 is that Jesus was not self-appointed, but rather God the Father appointed him as high priest at his resurrection. So we have two spirit-inspired texts that explicitly interpret Psalm 2:7 as a reference not only to the person of Jesus, but even specifically to his resurrection. Remember that sticky note that says that Jesus was acting or is acting as a prophet? Add to that sticky note that Psalm 2.7 is revealed in the New Testament as a reference to Jesus as a high priest. We'll come back to that. Well, one question you might be wondering as you hear these words, you are my son, today I have begotten you, is does this mean that Jesus only became the Son of God at the resurrection? The answer to that is an emphatic no. First of all, Jesus himself spoke of himself as the Son of God throughout his 
teaching ministry. But also, if we were to continue reading in Hebrews 5, which again connects Psalm 2-7 to Christ's high priesthood, the, the author goes on to say in verses 8 and 9, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. In other words, Jesus was already God's son, but his obedience in life and death solidified and confirmed that reality. It's like when a, a son does something to make their father proud. You know, We tend to say something like, oh, that's my boy. Well, God didn't use those words. He used words that are a little bit more difficult for us to, to understand. But at the resurrection, the father said to the son, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Now, coming back to our text, remember that this is a decree. In other words, in eternity past, the son of God knows that this is what will take place in the future. He knows that the day will come when he will step into time and space, live as a man, die, and then be raised again to life. Or put another way, the son here is prophesying about his future role as a high priest. That's not something you can get in the text itself. You have to use the New Testament to, to understand that. But that's decree number one. Decree number two, look at verse eight of Psalm 2, ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. In this prophetic utterance, the Son reveals to us an offer made by the Father to the Son. And this is a kind of offer that's made on the basis of the Father's pleasure in the Son. When Queen Esther came into the presence of that king, to invite him to a banquet. The king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom I will give you. Why did he say that? Well, because he delighted in Queen Esther, and he was willing to give her anything that she asked for. In the New Testament, the daughter of Herodias delighted Herod at his birthday party by dancing. And out of his delight, he said to her, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. Well, out of the infinite love that the Father has had for the Son from all eternity, He offers Him not half, but all of humanity, and in fact, the entire world. Titus 1 says, Paul, a bondservant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Now listen to this part. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Okay, God promised eternal life long ages ago. The, the phrase long ages ago is better or more literally translated before times eternal. Now, if God promised eternal life in eternity past, who was there for him to make this promise to? Well, of course we know it's God the Son. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ 
from all eternity. That last phrase, from all eternity, is the same Greek phrase that, again, can be translated from times or before times eternal. What what Paul is saying there in 2 Timothy is that God's grace was granted to us in Christ Jesus before times eternal. In other words, we receive grace because we are in Christ. And Christ received that promise of grace from the Father in eternity past. Here's where this connects to your life today. Your salvation is not an accident. It's not a plan B. It's not something that God had to quickly rush and come up with when things in the garden didn't go the way He expected. No, your salvation is the direct result of the Father offering an inheritance to His Son. Let me put it this way. You, if you're a believer, you are a gift from the Father to the Son. Planned, purchased, and wrapped before time began. Let that ruminate in your mind a little bit. Well, let's move on to decree number three. Look at verse nine. It says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This is a promise of victory over his enemies. These phrases are repeated numerous times in the Old and New Testament as referring to the coming Messiah who will vanquish his enemies. You know, when the Jews hoped that Jesus would rid Israel of the Romans, their, their hope was too small. The Messiah won't just remove enemies from the land itself. He will remove his enemies from the entire earth. All those who have raged against, against him will find themselves conquered by him. Psalm 110, which is another messianic prophecy, says this, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. There's a promise of what the Lord will do when he comes. In his message to the church of Thyatira, Jesus himself promised in Revelation chapter 2, He who overcomes... And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. So Psalm 2 reveals that that the Son will have victory over his enemies, and here in Revelation, Jesus promises to include those who, who endure to the end in that victory. The final culmination of these promises occur in Revelation 19 when Jesus himself ascends from heaven with all those who have overcome to establish his throne on the earth. It says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And the armies which are in heaven clothed with fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And then this last part, 
And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's fitting to end our consideration of the Son of God with those words. We've noted that in simply declaring these decrees, he's been acting in his role as a prophet. And in that first decree, he foretold of that time when he would be a high priest. And, and here at the end, we note that he's not just a king, but the king of kings. So the Son of God, Jesus, declared in Psalm 2, is prophet, priest, and king. The, the Messiah is a prophet by virtue of his declaration of divine decrees. He is our great high priest by virtue of his substitutionary death and resurrection. And he is king by virtue of defeating his enemies and receiving his kingdom to rule and reign over all the earth. Now with such dramatic truth, the psalm now turns a corner for our response. We've heard from the raging nations. We've heard from the laughing Lord who is the Father, and the conquering King who is the Son. And now we will hear from the calling Comforter who is the Holy Spirit. Look again at verses 10 to 12. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. I say this is the calling comforter who is the Holy Spirit, because even though this was written by David, he was, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But even beyond that, we hear in these words uh, truths that are the very role of the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught in the book of John that the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And the Holy Spirit is the one who takes what Christ has accomplished and applies it to humanity as he issues forth the call of salvation. That call of salvation is exactly what we have here. And really what we read here should be shocking to us. Remember that we've seen that not only do the nations rage as they gather together, but this is hostility in the human heart. This is universal. There are none who fear God, it says in Romans 3. All have turned aside and have hearts full of anger. And we've seen that as God, the Father isn't the least bit intimidated, but in fact has promised to conquer all His enemies and establish His Son as ruler over the world. But instead of closing this psalm with just this message of judgment, of what will happen to those who are wicked, the psalm closes with a warning and a call to repentance, and a promise of comfort. Look again at the warning in verse 10. It says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. When you think back to the father scoffing, it would be wrong to conclude that he doesn't care about humanity's fate. God is indeed concerned that if these people do not turn and repent, that they will be judged. His heart is 
not a heart of disinterest. His heart is a heart of grace. And so because he is a God of grace, he he patiently speaks to them with a desire to see them turn. He says, listen, listen to me. I have something to say to you. Friend, if you're listening to the sound of my voice and you've been living in rebellion against God externally or internally, listen up. Take heed to the warning that you're about to hear. Stop being so foolish to think that you can continue in your rebellion against the God who made you. Listen to what He has to say. Seriously consider the offer He is about to make. And look at the call to repentance. Verses 11 to 12, middle of 12. It says, Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way for His wrath may soon be kindled. There are three commands here as you see them. They are worship, rejoice, and do homage. The, the, the command to worship really means to serve. Instead of rebelling against the king, turn from your mutiny and serve him. Come under his command. Step across that line drawn in the sand and fall in behind the Lord as one of his servants. Be marked out as a citizen of his kingdom and submit to his rule over your life. That's what it means to worship here. The command to rejoice initially seems a little odd. How does this fit in? But, but what better response is there by those who were once under God's wrath but are now recipients of His grace. What greater privilege is there to go from from being God's enemy to being His beloved child? What greater joy is there from going going from the destructive life of self-service to the fulfilled life of serving in the court of the King of Kings? Rejoice that at one time you were His enemy, but now you are seated at His table. But as you see, this joy should be mixed with some measure of trembling. After all, the king is still the king. His commands are not suggestions. His sovereign will doesn't always coincide with what we think is best. And so we must rejoice with trembling, knowing that his will is best, even if we don't understand it. Rejoice in your new position, but tremble because it's not a life of ease. And then there's the command to do homage. Your translation might say, kiss the sun. That's the literal translation. But the question is, what does it mean to kiss the sun? Well, the closest parallel that we get from Scripture is in 1 Kings 19, verse 18, where the Lord says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. To kiss Baal was to worship him. We're familiar with the old practice of kissing a sovereign's king, right? What's, what's that all about? Well, it's a sign of submission, of loyalty. You could even say devotion. That is, at least in part, what worship is. To kiss the son who is the sovereign king is to recognize who he is, to submit to him, to express your devotion and loyalty to him. Friends, if you have not done so, Turn from your rebellion. Bow the knee to Christ. And you will find in Him one who is worthy of all of your devotion. 
Serve him and experience your rage turn to rejoicing as you have his grace cleanse you from your life of sin. Devote your life to him and worship him because he is worthy of it. If you do not, cover your ears and refuse to heed the warning and the call to repentance, you will find yourself among those who experience destruction at his hands. You will be shattered and conquered. You will experience the unmitigated anger and wrath of God, and you will perish. There's only one way to escape that outcome, and it's to turn, to bow the knee, to worship. Now that strong, compelling call ends on a note of hope. Look at it finally at the last line. Verse 12, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. To all who have heeded the warnings, to all who have taken refuge in the Son of God from his wrath, there is blessing to be found. This is the same kind of blessing that we find in Psalm 1. That is, that this person will be rescued from death and will receive a new life. A kind of life marked by stability and strength and fruitfulness and satisfaction. He will be rewarded with prosperity in this life and the next. Not not the kind of prosperity that our world seeks after, but a kind that is unwavering and unshakable and cannot be taken away. All those who have been persecuted by the raging nations, they can find their comfort as they take solace and refuge in the king. They will find rest for their souls as they take their refuge under his sovereign care. To those who endure to the end, excuse me, those who endure to the end will have indescribable joy and peace in the 1,000 year reign of Christ. And then they will experience the eternal joy and the eternal peace that comes to all who enter eternity and live with Christ on the new earth. Twenty twenty has been a year beyond description. It's we've all experienced things that none of us could ever have predicted. But if the Bible is true, things will only get worse, not better, until Jesus comes. It may be that it gets better in some ways, but worse in other ways. If the vaccines are successful, Lord willing, this pandemic may come to an end in the next few months. But there will inevitably be other challenges of one kind or another. Society may become just in some ways, and we should be grateful for that. But the sinful human heart ensures that there will always be injustice until Christ returns. Our hope is not in the improvement of this life. Our hope is in the Lord. The wind may change direction, the rain may let up at times or get stronger at other times, but the church must stand strong as a lighthouse, constantly shining the light of the gospel to a lost and dying world. That happens, of course, from this pulpit. That happens 
through the various ministries of the church, but it also happens from your homes, our schools, our workplaces, our communities. Jesus is the light of the world. He shines the light of judgment on those whose wickedness will be revealed and they will receive what is due. And His light shines in warmth and protection on those who take their refuge and turn and follow Him. Let us keep shining that good news to this hostile world. Let us pray. Our Lord, we are sobered by this message. Its reality is one that none of us would wish to see with our own eyes in the sense that we know that life is precious and that you have made man in your image. And to know that there are those who will suffer destruction eternally because of their rebellion is awful to think about. And yet, Lord, we rejoice that you are a God of grace, that you are a God who extends mercy to those who trust in you. And so we pray that for those in our own midst and for those whom we have yet to meet, that your gospel would go forth and those who are living in rebellion against you would turn and would find their salvation in Christ. Lord, use us. Use Hope Bible Church. Use our homes and our families, use our voices and our witness to be a light to Columbia and the surrounding cities and counties and even beyond. Use the missionaries that we support across the world to proclaim that gospel that all may hear of this God who is the ruling king who will judge, but yet who offers mercy and compassion and pardon to those who turn to him. Lord, if there are any here or watching right now who have not yet bowed the knee, would you strike into their heart the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ? Would you let that light shine in them and cause them to trust in you and see your beauty and your glory? That they might be a trophy of your grace. For all of us, Lord, who have trusted in you, May we always take refuge in you and not in the things of this world. May we seek to live our lives in a way that reflects your glory in this world so that Christ may be praised forever and ever. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.